Our gracious Father, Lord, we're so thankful for the goodness that you have bestowed upon us. We are anxious to hear from you this morning. Lord, speak clearly. Speak to our hearts, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Anyone likes traveling? I love traveling. It's one of my favorite things to do. The best thing about traveling is every time you go someplace outside of your, you know, normal day-to-day life, you get firsthand a unique uh, look at the culture of that place, the uh, quirks that people exhibit in other places, the, the way that people act and behave differently than, you know, someone in our culture. Uh, Even some specific traditions that we don't get to see in our culture. So weddings are a great place to see traditions come to life, don't you think? Uh, When you get an invitation from a, a, a a different culture, someone that is not from your culture, you get to see firsthand what they do. And so I was looking at a handful of different examples and came across this one. In Russia, the groom has to give money, presents, and get this, the groom has to sing and dance for the family of the bride-to-be. And this is before he even hears a, okay, you can marry her. So, I guess you need to... Get those pipes ready, right? In China, they believe what Alexander Graham Bell used to say, preparation is the key for everything. And they leave absolutely nothing to chance, not even crying. So the bride practices her wedding cry about a month or so ahead of the wedding. And then the female relatives and some of her friends will join her also a few days before the wedding because they will leave nothing to chance, not even the ugly cry. In India, Pakistan, and even some regions of Middle, uh, Middle East, the night before the wedding, it's a beautiful time where, where the bride gathers with the female relatives and also some friends, and they get together for what they call the henna tradition. Now, this is a beautiful time where uh, the friends, the relatives will draw intricate and beautiful designs all over the bride's hands and arms and feet. And this is offered as a symbol of good luck and and fertility and also a time to offer advice and support for the bride. Culture isn't only confined to countries or regions or weddings, but large companies and places of business invest time and energy and resources in defining their cultures too. A few years back, the Harvard Business Review released an article called, get this, culture takes place, or sorry, culture takes over when the CEO leaves the room. That's a great title, isn't it? This explores some of the most intentionally culture-building businesses and companies and what they do. 
So consider some of the companies that come to mind when you think of strong culture. How about the Ritz-Carlton? They uh, have this motto, ladies and gentlemen serve ladies and gentlemen. So in essence, every employee carries a credo card at all times, and this serves to remind them of the core values of this organization. It's a reminder of the company's culture and how they should behave at any moment. It's always in front of them. Anyone ever order shoes from Zappos? When you receive, when you receive your box of shoes, there is one or maybe more of their values in the box. And this serves as a reminder not just to the person who ordered the box, but also this serves as a reminder to the employee packing that box that that is what that company stands for. Their mission is to wow through service. And each employee is empowered to do whatever it takes to accomplish just that. How about Southwest, Southwest Airlines? Anybody flown there? I'm always amazed at how uh, customer service minded they are. They are legendary for empowering their people to have what they call a warrior spirit and a servant's heart. It means they can do whatever it takes to take care of the customer and serve others first. Now let's compare that to an airline who doesn't intentionally focus on culture. And last year we had plenty of examples of that, right? I've personally renamed Spirit Airlines as the never again airline. And I'm sure, I heard an amen here. <laughs> and I'm sure many, many here have their own experiences and their own testimonies and encounters with different employees who are not living culture-mindedly and also uh, companies who are not building culture. So the bottom line is this, whether intentional or not, every place has a culture. And it is that culture, that which uh, whether it's there intentionally created or otherwise, that is what influences how employees respond to everyday life, everyday demands, and even those unprecedented events. School, schools have cultures, families create their own culture, sometimes melding two cultures together, and churches have culture. See, Jesus knew the, that cultures either create themselves by default or are intentionally built and aligned. He opted for the latter. During his ministry here on earth, he demonstrated what the kingdom of God is all about. But there is one occasion where he chose to be very clear, very specific, so he spelled it out for us in detail what the culture of his kingdom looks like and feels like and how that applies to every citizen. This occasion is what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount and is also known as the Beatitudes. We find versions of this sermon in two places, Matthew 5 through 7 and Luke 4. 
And this is important to note because Matthew's audience was mainly Jews and then Luke's audience was Gentiles. So this tells me that no matter how one arrives at the kingdom of God as a new nation, when Jesus is saying these things, it applies to everyone, Jew and Gentile. So Matthew got very creative in his interpretation of uh, the words that Jesus shared. He desired to engage his Jewish audience, and so over and over throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he makes a lot of parallels, comparisons between Moses and Jesus. He wanted for the Jews to see Jesus as the new and greater Moses. He divided the narrative of Jesus' childhood into five parts. And then he divided the overall uh, book of Matthew into five parts as well because the number five was very important for the Jews. It was the number of where the, the, that held the law of Moses, right? Divided into five books. Instead of using the phrase kingdom of God, which is Luke's favorite phrase, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven out of respect for his Jewish audience who refrain from using the name of God, from saying the name of God out loud. So the first discourse in the book of Matthew is what um, scholars have referred to as the kingdom's manifesto. This is where we find Jesus' public declaration, if you will, of what the culture of his kingdom looks like and how that culture is manifested in each citizen of his kingdom. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and it's found in Matthew 5 through 7. So let's see how it starts. Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain... And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he up opened his mouth and taught them. So three things I notice here. Right away, Matthew is doing another comparison with Moses. He's saying, <clears throat> Jesus went up on the mountain. Who also went on the mountain to receive the law of Moses? Moses. So he's saying, now Jesus went up on the mountain to teach. So right away, he is telling his Jewish audience this, what Jesus is teaching, is just as important as the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments that were shared with them. So Matthew divides the Beatitudes in a similar way to what Matthew, sorry, to what Moses, uh, when he received the Ten Commandments, the first four, have to do with our relationship with God. The last six, our relationship with each other. So we'll talk about that a little later, but let's look at that word seated. It's there for a reason. You see, to us, that doesn't mean much. If you sit down, it's because you don't want to stand up anymore, right? You're just tired. But in Jesus's culture, in Matthew's culture, it was customary for a rabbi when he was getting ready to teach to sit down. This was a signal that would automatically tell his students, I'm about to teach. Class is in session, so get ready. And his students would just listen. Matthew says he opened his mouth to teach. 
And this seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? One cannot speak unless one opens his mouth. But Jesus used to teach a lot without words, right? There were many occasions where he would just demonstrate his teachings. And I think of one particular case in Mark 11 when Jesus makes a triumphant entrance in Jerusalem. Remember that time? He sends his disciples to get a donkey, doesn't really tell them what that is for, just says, come, just tell them that the Lord sends you. All right, they went, get the monkey, the, the monkey, the donkey, come back. And Jesus makes a triumphant entrance into the city of Jerusalem. They would not know this until later, but this was a fulfillment of the prophecy found in Zechariah 9.9. It says, behold, your king is coming, lowly and riding on a donkey. So now think of all the things that Jesus taught to them that taught them that day. As the people of Jerusalem are watching Jesus make that powerful entrance into the city, they now have to make a choice. Is that my king? Will I call this man my Messiah? Is this the king we've been waiting for? But up on this mountain, Jesus uses words. He opened his mouth to teach, and he does so with clarity and with power and with might. He does so. Everyone in the mountain can hear his voice. So here's the introduction to his message, and we find it in Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus sees the crowd and in essence says, okay, so you want to be my disciple. You want to adopt my culture as your own. So here's the first step. You have to become poor in spirit. That is the very first step to becoming a citizen. Spiritual poverty. What does that even mean? Jesus, Jesus is saying this is how you represent the kingdom of heaven. You have to be poor in spirit and you will be blessed when you do that. The word blessed comes from the, the Greek word Makarios. I love saying that word. It's a fun word to say. Try it sometime. Makarios, which means supremely blessed. In the Greek, it means fortunate and happy, but the interesting part comes looking at those first three letters. Mak. Those first three letters relate to a lengthy life. Greek people saw the idea of blessedness as a long, happy life. And so because Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, we know that he is not referring to a nice long retirement in the golf course of your choice, but rather a long retirement in the kingdom of God. Supremely blessed, heavenly blessed. 
about 20 years ago, my aunt, who was in her mid-late 30s at the time, received, received the news that she had um, stage four breast cancer. And the prognosis did not look good for her. It had spread already, and uh, there, there was very little, really, that the doctors could do for her, but she gave it a fight still. And she tried everything they told her to try. And this was quite a shock for all of us. She had um, a joyful personality. This was the kind of person that walked into a room and just made friends with everybody. It was contagious, you know? She was one of my absolute favorite people on the planet. I was starting college at the time, and I used to love driving whenever I could to her house just to spend time with her because I love spending time with her. So it became quite evident that her fight was over. And uh, she decided that it was time to take a trip back to Puerto Rico and spend time with relatives before she passed. A few days before her passing, she was in the hospital and a childhood friend came to see her and her uh, thought was, I'm gonna go encourage her and pray with her. And so as she arrived and saw her face, she became furious, her friend became furious at this disease that was taking away her friend. She was angry that she would lose her friend so early in life. And my sweet aunt, whose faith was so unshaken, took her hand and began to encourage her friend. She began to recite scripture. She began to reassure her that this is not the end because we have hope. We don't grieve like the world grieves. We have the blessed hope that surpasses any suffering in this world. In that moment, in that moment, my aunt demonstrated the true meaning of the word blessed. The anchor of hope that holds our souls steady in the midst of trouble and pain. So Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. This phrase, poor in spirit, is the very foundation of what God calls us to be. That's what they're called beatitudes, attitudes to be. Jesus is not saying that if you're poor in material things, then that's the equal of poor in spirit. He is also not saying that until you're poor in spirit, you have no value or no worth. He's saying spiritual bankruptcy. Those who realize they have no spiritual assets to offer. There were two types of poor in ancient Greek. The first poor is one that many of us can relate to. We make ends meet, right? We uh, may struggle at times. Sometimes it gets really difficult, but we get by. That's one way of looking at poor. But Jesus is talking about truly poor. This is the kind of poor who had absolutely nothing. 
And they literally had to beg for even the most basic of needs. And Jesus is referring to that. He is talking about someone so spiritually bankrupt, they rely on God for every spiritual need. And this term of truly poor is very foreign to us in concept because our society has placed some safeguards around our lives that prevent us from getting to that point, right? We have credit cards when the bank account says zero. We have paycheck advances. We have pawn shops. We have uh, family members to borrow. Many, many options, loans. So really, uh, there are plan B, C, D, and we have options to look at before we get to that point. So most of us have never really had to beg for our basic needs. We've never had to beg for a piece of bread, for some water. We've never had to beg to have roof over our, our heads. As I was thinking about this, and looking in my life, what, what experience in my life can I relate to that? I can't even think of one where I've been so desperate, I've had to beg for my basic needs. I've been well taken care of all my life. So I was sitting in front of my laptop. My laptop is pretty old. It's about seven or eight years old, which is ancient in technology days, right? I noticed my computer started working a little slower than normal. So I closed all the applications thinking maybe this will help it, and that didn't work. And then I try to restart it, because that's usually what resets it, and then it spinned and spinned and spinned and never came back. Just the day before, my husband, my IT guy, he was hooking up an external hard drive in order to back it up because we know it's an old laptop and we figure, you know, maybe we should be proactive about this. But for some reason, the laptop did not accept it. And so he would try it and he would reject it. He would try to run a little bit and then slow down. And he had to go on a trip and said, okay, we'll make it a priority when, we get ba when I get back. And as life usually goes, Laptop dead, no backup, no IT guy, no sermon. And I'm literally left to beg God for mercy. And I'm thinking, God, I really wish you would give me a different illustration for my sermon. But in our first world mentality, it is so hard for us to comprehend what that looks like where there is absolutely nothing but to beg for God's mercy. See, our world celebrates self-reliance, not God-reliance. There needs to be personal intentionality for us in desiring to align our values with God's values, or it just won't happen. This is why Jesus consistently reinforced this kingdom culture in his storytelling. Uh, in order to provide us with plenty of examples, 
He told us plenty of stories of what kingdom culture looks like. And so one example I could think of or, or that I read was uh, in Luke 18, 9 through 14, an example of someone who exhibited poor in spirit. It says, also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the men and like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. He went on and on. He had a checklist. Now, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I love how Jesus gives the moral of the story right off the bat. He says, listen, if you don't hear the rest of the story, let me tell you what the story is about. The Pharisee trusted in himself and his righteousness. He looked at God and said, okay, God, I did this, I did that, I did that. I'm good, right? But the tax collector acknowledged his sinful nature and even more than that, his, his need of a savior. See, when we're all poor in spirit, then we are all equal. There is no one greater than the other. We all start at the same place, open hands, facing up, begging for spiritual nourishment from God. There's no time for judgments or arguments or even silly fights because we are too busy begging God for our next spiritual meal. There is a reason poor in spirit is first on the list. And it's because that's where it all starts. See, notice that pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted, that comes after. It is impossible to do any of the others on the list if we don't first acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. And even less, if we don't acknowledge our complete and utter reliance on God. Charles Spurgeon used to say, it is not what I have, but what I have not. That is the first point of contact between my soul and God. Can you just imagine how much trouble we would save ourselves if we all lived with that kind of intentionality, with that kind of humble spirit? with that kind of dependence on God. If this was truly our culture, then not only would that be a blessing to us personally, 
but it would be a blessing to the church in general. And then we would truly become a culture that would answer Jesus' prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come. And Jesus outlined the culture of his kingdom for us and how to start to live out each day. But really, it is our choice whether we choose to live our lives in alignment with kingdom culture or if we don't. So as we live out as citizens of God's kingdom this week, I invite you to reflect on what it means to be totally, completely reliant on God. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does that mean in my life? And then what does that mean as I face a God who is rich in mercy and love and wisdom and grace? May this be our daily prayer. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Amen.